0: When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and they answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here today. A reading from Genesis 43. And the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state, and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits of the land in your vessel and carry down the man a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother. And Benjamin, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we have the final acquiescence of Jacob, or here in this chapter, as he is called Israel. The previous chapter, he's called Jacob. The names are interchangeable. Uh, God named him Israel, Strong One, um, after Jacob's wrestling with the angel. Israel means strong. And here he is showing a little bit of his strength, the emotional strength to do what is right and do what needs to be done, even though there is great risk involved. What he is being asked to do is offer his other son up. He has already lost Joseph And now he risks losing Benjamin. Benjamin has to be in his 20s at this point. Joseph is around 30. Benjamin is a little bit younger, but not much younger. So um, it kind of tells us a little bit about how family dynamics worked in those days. Uh, The older brothers, who are older than Joseph, they're probably in their 40s. They have to ask permission of their father, Jacob, or Israel in this chapter, to go and come. And you can see that this is more like a company or a business than maybe a nuclear family that you and I experience here in the United States of America. Um, Certainly around the world, different families have different uh, expectations and rules for what sons in their 20s can and cannot do. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, um, there was a student uh, who was, his family lived in Korea, and he was originally from Korea as well, living here and studying and, and, and planning to go back to Korea. But um, midway through his seminary time, uh, his father needed him to come back. And so he came back. Um, He left seminary and went back to, because his father had told him to do that. Um, And that was puzzling to me as a white American. Um, You know, my father had never asked me to do that, but um, I don't know what I would have done if he had. But there are different expectations. And this family that we see, Benjamin and Joseph and Jacob and the brothers and Rachel and Leah Um, the father, the patriarch, literally, um, can order them to do things, and they are bound to do them. But here we see some personal growth in the character of these brothers. Here, Judah steps up and says that I will give my life for my brother Benjamin, that I will um, be surety for him. Surety means that uh, whatever happens to him will happen to me, that he'll protect him with his life, that he will forfeit his life if need be. And we see the same thing that Reuben said earlier in the last chapter, now is J- saying it. And all these brothers have suddenly realized that, that uh, their lives, uh, what they did to Joseph, has taught them a lesson that they will never ever do that kind of thing again. In fact, um, they want to do the opposite. They want an opportunity to save their brother's life. They are looking for a chance to be heroic since they took the chance to be a coward so long ago, um, over a decade ago, but it still haunts them. Um, We used to have a saying that we use a lot Time heals all wounds. Time heals all wounds. And it's not really true. Uh, Time heals clean wounds. If you um, have a wound and you don't clean it or it's not cleaned or it gets infected, things get a lot worse. And the wound, their moral injury, the injury to their sense of morality in the near killing and and betrayal of Joseph is a wound that has not been cleaned over the years. And so the dysfunction of these brothers and their their infected wound in their soul is very clear and plain. But now they are cleaning it. For the first time in their life, they are starting to scrub away uh, what has accumulated over time. On the other hand, Joseph has been cleaning the wound of this betrayal. He has been working uh, on this forgiveness for a long time. And you can see it in the way that they um, interact with him and the way they tell their father, the brothers tell their father about the conversations they had, that um, this guy, we couldn't lie to him about our brother. Because Israel says, why didn't you lie about your brother? Why would you tell this Egyptian guy about your youngest brother? Now he knows about him and he wants to see him. And they say that they really couldn't lie to him. He seemed to know stuff about us. He seemed to know things about us. Here Joseph is showing in his restraint and that he has healed from the, the wound of these brothers. He wants to make the ultimate healing, which is the kind of uh, reconciliation that is offered um, in forgiveness in this family. And so uh, time does not heal all wounds, only time heals clean wounds. So as we give our wounds to God, as, as we pray to God and share those with each other and confess and forsake and open our hearts to God's love and remember that Jesus died for us and we are forgiven in him and that our worth does not depend on what other people do or what they say about us, but ultimately uh, where we are with God and in God, we are greatly loved and God, we are forgiven and God, we are restored. And so um, that is the reality of the life of cleaning one's wounds and working on them. Joseph is doing it. Um, his wounds, which are significant and huge, are, have not festered and gotten infected over the years. In fact, um, they have become his qualifications for leadership at this time. The leadership that he has done in the land of Egypt has come not from his bitterness and anger and trying to get back on top and destroy his, the, the, those that hurt him, but it has come out of his forgiveness and his moving on with his life um, even after this horrible, horrible um, wound from his brothers. So the scene is set. Benjamin is on his way to Egypt. We don't know what will happen. Um, I do hope you follow the readings for the next couple days because this is where it gets really, really good. Um, Really, really good. Uh, the story of Joseph and the story of us as well. Amen. Today is a very special day for all the Davids of the world. On this feast of St. David of Wales, Despite the overwhelming victory of the pagan Angles, Saxons, and Jutes in the 5th century, one part of Britain continued in the ways of Christianity. Wales, the land west of the Wye River. Um, The island of England, or Great Britain, however you call it in the 5th century, um, was invaded, and not necessarily invaded, um, by the way we think of invasions, but it was more of a migration of mercenaries that came from the area that is now known as Germany and Western Europe. They were the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Eventually the Angles and the Saxons became known as the Anglo-Saxons. And their language is the language that we speak today called English, Angle, English, and the land, England, came from the Angles, Angleland, and the language that we speak today. That got a lot of French words in the Norman Conquest, but it is very similar to the language we speak today. And yet, there was this part of Wales in Wales that resisted, and because of some of the mountains and other terrain features, was able to retain an early, earlier form of Christianity that dated back to the Roman era because um, Christians have been in Britain um, ever since uh, Christianity was born. There were Roman Romans living in Great Britain at the time of Jesus and there were Christians there pretty early on that came with the Roman army. Uh, many of the soldiers in the Roman army were Christians and, uh, and fought and and uh, practiced their faith and sometimes were persecuted for it. Um, and they brought Christianity all the way to Britain. But David, or Dewey, as he's known in the Welsh language, was born around the year, the year 500 in Menevia. Little is known about his early life, but while he's fairly young, he founds a monastery near Menevia and became its abbot. He is said to have been a strict... To, he, he is said to be... To have been very strict in governing his own monastery, yet loving in his treatment and correction of wrongdoers, he required monks to pull plows themselves rather than relying on animal labor and to spend every evening in spiritual reading and writing. No personal possessions were permitted, and even to say, my book or my robe were offenses, since monks had only the use of those things, not the possession of them. One of his nicknames was the Waterman, and that may indicate that he allowed the monks in his care to drink only water at meals instead of the customary wine or mead or beer. Pretty sure that history has made it clear that he did not allow his monks to drink beer or to eat meat uh, most of the year except for special occasions. And that is why uh, even to this day on the Feast of St. David, Welsh people have a leek that they eat. A leek is like a long, thick onion. And the leek became the symbol of St. David because that's what they ate a lot of. They grow pretty easily. When I lived in West Virginia in college, the leeks there, were the wild onions, were called ramps. And that dates back to that same tradition. They would have ramp dinners at church and other places and uh, they were all centered around this wild onion that St. David and his monks ate a lot of. Um, they, the British Army has several Welsh regiments, and, uh, or the U- United Kingdom Army, has uh, several Welsh regiments. And on this day, the Welsh regiments do a lot of St. David's stuff. And uh, one of them is uh, the youngest soldiers eat leeks, or they have a leek-eating competition. I think it's how fast they can eat a leek and the winner gets some kind of prize. Anyway, those are fun customs to have. David's strong desire was to study and meditate in the quiet of his monastery, but he was virtually dragged to an assembly of bishops called to combat the heresy of Pelagianism. Pelagianism uh, came from England, or maybe even Scotland. Um, Pelagius was a monk from Britain who eventually ended up in Rome or somewhere around Rome. And he taught that um, that perfection was possible for people, that Christians could experience full perfection. They just had to work a little bit harder. They just had to be better and behave better and climb that ladder to salvation. Um, Pelagius was very compelling and a great speaker and leader, and got a lot of people to join him in this um, what became later known as the Pelagian heresy. Uh, Because it denied that we are saved through God's grace alone. That God saved us on the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus, in the power of the resurrection, we have eternal life. And We don't need to earn that grace from God. And Pelagius was kind of telling people that they needed to earn God's grace. St. Augustine of of Hippo is his main theological opponent. But many other bishops joined in to say that, um, how are we saved? And what does scripture say about that? And reading the Book of Romans, Letter to the Romans by St. Paul and others, they really came down to this fact that Pelagius was changing the Christian story. And it's really not a heresy until the church councils say it's a heresy. And and once they did, Pelagius didn't really bend in this. He didn't didn't acknowledge that to be true and kept going in his um, own interpretation of of uh, how, we, how we know Jesus, and how we know God, and those sorts of things. But David, St. David was there. Um, he was chosen to be the successor to the Archbishop of Wales, and he had, by that time he had founded 11 other monasteries and even made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which you can imagine how difficult that would be in the 6th century He was a scholar, a competent administrator, and a man of moderation. He filled the offices he held with distinction. He became a leader and guardian of the Christian faith in Wales. Eventually, eventually he moved the center of Episcopal government to Menevia, where his monastery was, um, which is still an Episcopal city now called the Tai Dewey, the House of David, Um, Dewey Sant, Saint David, Uh, is commemorated here in the city of Austin at St. David's Hospital, which was founded by St. David's Episcopal Church and then was bought out by HCA Healthcare, a for-profit healthcare company. But they retain the name St. David's. Lots of people think it's Catholic, but it was an Episcopal hospital at one time. And then St. David's Episcopal Church, the oldest church in Austin, which was originally named Epiphany, but then they changed the name, I forget what year, to St. David's, uh, for St. David of Wales. So a good good uh, reminder. And also, um, it's a good time to remember the ways that Welsh people have blessed our world. Um, one of them is Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is a Welshman. And he has uh, really gifted our church with really good wisdom and good books and good thoughts, especially when it comes to issues of human sexuality. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the horrific battles over that subject in the Anglican Communion worldwide and uh, really helped our church stick together, even though we disagreed on a number of things. Um, And some of the writings that he gave during that time were just really profound and beautiful. It helped me a lot discern uh, what I thought about those issues. A Welshman. Many Welsh people came to America um, and other places to work in the tin, copper, and other steel industries uh, that came up along the east coast of the United States. And today's a day where um, their work has been commemorated as well. Um, so have an onion today, have a leek, and remember St. David. Almighty God, who didst call thy servant David to be a faithful and wise servant of the mysteries of the people of Wales, mercifully grant that following his purity of life and zeal for the gospel of Christ, we may with him praise thee both here on earth and also in thy everlasting kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God forever and ever. Amen. And just want a, one other note about St. David. Sorry, I keep going on about him. But uh, his um, the way he set up his monastery uh, illustrates the fact that these early Celtic monks um, that we see in Ireland, in Wales, and a couple other places um, were really probably equivalent to today's endurance athletes, um, the way that they saw the world and their part in it. Uh, most of the things they're doing are extremely physically arduous. Not only are they fasting a lot, um, it's only later that we see the sort of uh, libertine monks, you know, brewing tons of beer and having big parties um, in the Middle Ages. But this early medieval monk was an endurance athlete. Um, Making the monks plow, pull the plows, um, huge physical exertion. And it was, they were mostly young men. Um, the monks of this time were mostly teenagers and people in their 20s. And even St. David is probably in his 20s when he founds the monastery. Um, so this, we also have descriptions of monks playing uh, ball games and other sports from this time period. And we have monks um, engaging in other feats of physical endurance like going out in the ocean in the surf up to their neck and reciting the Psalter, the Psalms, like all 150 of them, and then getting out of the water, um, standing uh, until the birds started to roost in their hair in the with their arms out in the shape of the cross. Um, physical hardship, uh, akin to what we would see in a triathlete or something like that today, um, That was kind of how they decided to live their lives and uh, cast aside the comforts of this world to uh, deepen their spiritual life and have mystical vision. And when you do that, you get some mystical vision. And um, that's what they were after in this time. It wasn't for everybody in their day, and it's certainly not for everybody in our day, but um, we ought to learn from them that um, Celtic spirituality in the 1970s and 80s had a big resurgence in popularity in America. Uh, And a lot of it was based on fake history. A lot of it was based on, um, they were sort of seen as sort of a very self-indulgent group that didn't have any theology and didn't believe anything and just wanted to sing and and, uh, make merry. But Celtic uh, spirituality, especially from these monks, was arduous and difficult, and full of hardship, and self-sacrifice, and even a kind of communal uh, communism that didn't uh, practice any kind of personal property or anything like that. So um, it was very that revival was very misguided and unhistorical. There's been later books to correct some of the historical abuses there, and mistakes and probably good-hearted mistakes but um, I think uh, we have a lot to learn from these folks they're out in the in the western part of the Isle of Britain